listening to the Recovering Methodism Podcast, a global Methodist voice for navigating life and ministry in the 21st century, tackling the issues impacting the church, and recovering the distinctly Methodist practices to participate in the next great awakening. And now your hosts, David Cady and Caleb Spiker. All right, well, we are back. Recovering Methodism podcast. Another episode. Looking forward to having some conversation today around spiritual formation and how the local church is onboarding new members and just that process of what it looks like, especially from a global Methodist perspective of how we help folks engage in um, the kind of discipleship that leads to life transformation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so we were... um... We were at the Allegheny West Annual Conference here a couple weekends ago, um, and there was a, a pretty interesting uh, bit of research that George Barnard actually did about 15 years ago that was presented to us there by Kevin Watson. Um, I don't know if you uh, were in that particular session or not, but he was talking about the, the 10 stops in the Christian journey. I was not in that session. I attended the other ones. Uh, by the way, there was some wonderful teaching going on oh, at that annual conference. Indeed, and a lot of lot of lot of just information and, and uh, ideas that were being shared that I think were very practical in the life of the local church. And this was one of them. Yeah, yeah. Um. So so George Barna, uh, back in two thousand nine, ten, eleven, uh, he did some some research uh, amongst uh, Christians. Um, and was trying to map out the 10 stops in the journey of transformation, uh, beginning at the place where you have no understanding of, you know, your sin or, you know, sin more generally. And Which describes someone that traditionally we'd say is lost. Lost. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, that, that second stop where you begin to notice that something's wrong, Right, you might not quite understand what, but like something is is broken in the world, and then stop three. Oh, that's something that's wrong. I'm a it, part of it's it. It's me. Yeah, I'm yeah. the problem. I'm the problem. Um, and then you know, from there, gain to this place where you repent, where um, where you make uh, some sort of uh, uh, response and faith to God's grace and uh, experience new life. So part of that understanding is not only am I the problem, I'm not the solution. Exactly right. That Jesus is the solution. And so there's this awakening, the spiritual awakening that occurs that leads to faith and repentance. Indeed. Yep. Um, and then uh, Barna talks about the fifth stop tends to be the place that uh, the American church has tried to keep people um, because it's very marketable. <laughs> So and, this this concept that you're going to be talking about is often embraced by, we'll say, big evangelical movements yeah. of keeping people busy and occupied. Yep. And they're good activities, mm-hmm. right? But they don't always necessarily lead to life transformation. Yeah, if I remember correctly, uh, Barna calls it um, consumer formation. Consumer formation. Okay. So it's it has sort of the general look of the spiritually formative Christian disciplines, but it's, uh, it's continually changing. It's novel. It's, it is making sure as best as you can, that people don't get to the place where I'm like, I'm just not being fed anymore. So let's just get real practical here. This would be a a series and cycle of Mm -hmm. Bible studies or activities. Eight week Bible study followed by a short-term mission trip, followed by being in the choir, followed by the quilting club, right? Like any sort of program that you can continue to move from one thing to the next. Um, but yet that's my life, right? That's that's our experience in the local church, and they're not bad things. No, of course not. But they don't always produce life change, is that what and, you're saying? And they, um, if we get in the spin cycle of going from thing to thing to thing, uh, they won't produce maturity. So the tendency then is in local church is to try to keep the plate spinning mm-hmm. with all these activities. Otherwise, people get to the place where I'm not being fed and we're not doing anything and so on and so forth. And this is stop six, a prolonged period of spiritual discontent. Say that again. So stop six is a prolonged period of spiritual discontent. Okay. Okay. And that is 
um, a necessary uh, place in the Christian journey where um, where you learn how to bring your actual life under the lordship of Jesus, where you um, can get onto the road toward entire sanctification. So are you suggesting that a person can be involved in all kinds of church activity, Bible study, mission trips, service projects, activities within the local church, and not find um, life change? I am more than just suggesting it. <laughs> uh, I am I'm saying you and I have been in this industry long enough to say that's the norm. Sure. Um, and so what the necessary step is, the step six, this spiritual dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. one could see that and say, well, that's a bad thing, when really it's a good thing. It is um, in the same way that that with uh, when, I mean, I remember so we have three little boys, um, and with each of them, we had that, that time in their life where we had to put them in their bedroom and shut the door, and they would wail. Why don't you love me? Why aren't you here Bedtime. with me? Bedtime. Bedtime. Gotcha. Um, but you know, a, a parent who cares about their child knows they need to figure out how to trust that their parents are there even when they can't see them. Right. And fall asleep even if their parents aren't right there with them. So just real quick here, we're not saying that Bible study, that activity in the ministries of a local church, that mission trips are bad things. Of course not. We're saying that they don't always produce the long-lasting life change results that we think they're going to produce. Yes, outside of actually doing that hard work of of walking through the, you know, what... Uh, St. John the Cross would call the dark night of the soul. Mm. Um, that 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 sense of, you know, I don't feel all the warm fuzzies about being a Christian that I once did, um, but I'm going to choose to remain in a disciplined life. I'm going to choose to become even more introspective and see if there are parts of my life that I haven't submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. So I'm I'm thinking back, there'd be a lot of folks listening, perhaps, that perhaps went through Disciple Bible Study in mm-hmm. the 90s, which back then was about a 36-week yeah, course, right? Mm-hmm. And many people experienced tremendous life change in that. Many people experienced call to ministry through that. Mm-hmm. And many people point to that experience as significant in their faith journey, perhaps because it wasn't an eight-week course, mm-hmm. that it was intended to be a almost an entire year's worth of in-depth Bible study and community mm-hmm. that perhaps gave space for God to work and act in, in specific ways. But um, <laughs> what I sense from Barner's research, and maybe what Kevin Watson was presenting, is this, this concept in the local church of keeping people occupied, the next Bible study with the next activity, uh, programming programmatic year activities mm-hmm. um, is, is, is not something that necessarily provides enough time and space and depth for people to actually engage in what God is doing in their life. And it maybe pacifies the congregation to say, we're, we're doing good things, but it's not producing the kind of change, and it doesn't lead to that spiritual dissatisfaction. Is that on target? I think so. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, Barnum would take it a step further to say that that, that spin cycle of activity doesn't lead us to the place of dying to self. And dying to self is necessary for the lordship of Jesus mm-hmm. to be a reality in our lives. Exactly right. Because if I don't die to self... Then we can't inherit new life. There you go. Now, for for those who may be listening who are perhaps pastoring churches that maybe don't have a lot of resources or staff or activity going on, there may be a tendency to say, well, we need to do an eight-week Bible study, and that gives us something to do, and our folks will have something to do. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're perhaps listening to Barna or Kevin Watson would say, wait a second, you don't have to imitate the, the plate-spinning mm-hmm. um, activities of a larger church. You don't have to get in and develop the spin cycle of activity. There may be a different way. Well, and, and we're about to, uh, in a later segment, talk about our, our eight-week new member program um, that if it stops at the end of eight weeks, then it has failed its purpose, right? Like, like I think those, those short 
programs have a lot of value for resourcing people to live into the next season of life. Okay. But if it ends at the end of eight weeks, then we're just feeding the consumer machine. If it ends after eight weeks, and I'll add, or establishes a pattern of spin cycle for the next eight weeks of activity. Yeah. And what we're saying is we're trying to demonstrate the kind of Christian community uh, that is ongoing and goes deeper. Precisely. That allows for individuals to to come to places of growth in their faith where dying to self is an ongoing and daily practice and surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus is not a one-time activity. Yeah. So, I mean, so for Barna, from that place of spiritual discontent, there's the stop of heightened awareness of sin. Um, that that just because uh, we uh, repented there on you know March 10th, 1995, and asked Jesus to be our Savior, that isn't the end of our repentant process. Because, you know, as Kevin Watson uh, points out in the class meeting, Christian maturity is the daily task of giving all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. That's fantastic. So I just signed up um, myself and my, my, my three kids for the PAL turkey trot on Thanksgiving go. morning. And I have this image of crossing the starting line and saying, hey, I'm done. Mm, mm-hmm. Right? And so you're pointing back to a, maybe a, uh, a beginning point in a person's faith journey, we use in March of 1995 or whatever it may be for yeah. an individual, and realizing that, hey, I just got started. There's a whole race to run of the faith journey. And what, what you're suggesting from Barna's research and from what Kevin presented at the annual conference is that we have to help folks learn to run the race set before them by creating the kind of um, Christian community that allows for deeper growth in, in this faith journey, this heightened awareness of mm-hmm. sin. Is that, yep. is that accurate? Because with the heightened awareness of sin, we can um, make the decision to die to self and receive God's grace. And um, like we uh, talked about in our Bible study this morning where we were looking at the Beatitudes, it's in that place of spiritual bankruptcy right. that we are filled. Right. Uh, that we're filled with a, a love for God and a love for our neighbor that, uh, as Wesley would say, we're entirely sanctified, mm. even if for just a moment, because, you know, the the wisdom of, of, of Watson brings us back to, you know, two weeks from now, you'll be different. Are you willing to bring that new self under the Lordship of Christ? And just as it would be foolish to enter a four-mile race and cross the starting line and think that you're finished, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It would be foolish to say, I had an experience with God and I gave my life to Jesus, therefore I'm all good, I'm I'm in. Mm -hmm. That would be foolish, right? There's an entire race to run in which we need to continue to die to self and surrender the Lordship of Jesus. And as I heard you say the other night at another worship service, if you don't continually surrender the Lordship of Jesus and become more like Jesus in your daily life, you have a tendency to become more like Caleb in your daily life, which... It's a problem. That's a problem um, in, in all of our lives. You know, mm-hmm. the more... Nobody needs Dave on the throne. No. No. We need Jesus on the throne. Right? And so as I become um, more under the Lordship of Jesus, um, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But it has to be an ongoing thing. Indeed. Okay. And so how does, how does Barna finish up this 10-step description of the Christian life. Now, he's, he's not Wesleyan, necessarily. Nope. And so you added some language, right, entire sanctification, that maybe Barna doesn't go to. No. All right, so unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. Um, so for Barna, you get through the spin cycle, you have uh, the prolonged spirit period of spiritual discontent, that dark night of the soul, leads to heightened awareness of sin, uh, leads to death to self, and then... Once you've died to self, you can be, uh, you can find yourself with uh, a deep and abiding love for God, and then a deep and abiding love for your neighbor, um, which you know we as Wesleyans call entire sanctification. Now, um, you know, Barna, uh, being a little more reformed in nature, uh, doesn't want to see people backslide back to six and seven and eight. Um, 
but as Wesleyans, we say like that's that's just the the ebb and flow of life as a human, right? That we will have these these uh, these times where we truly have given all that we know of ourselves, all that we know of God. But a week from now, we'll learn something new about ourselves, or uh, something that had been defeated a month ago is going to rear its ugly head, and we have to, you know, kill it again. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think that's that's where um, where we you know put that focus on. You know, are we going to to focus on um, spin cycle formation? or on deep Christian formation. Because a lot of those things that that we introduce in Stop 5 are going to be the sort of things that help you keep your life under the lordship of Jesus. Um, but it's that, that are, we, are we keeping people busy or are we helping people mature? I think that's, that's a question that every church has to ask. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this because t- it's, really, it's really painful to let people go to Step 6. Stop six. Um, that tends to be when they say, you know, I'm not getting fed. I need to go find another church, or, um, or even worse, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling it anymore. I'm not sure if Christianity is actually for me. But if we are, um, if we are helping folks to be seaworthy ships and not paper boats. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a, a journey we need to be willing to make with them. So in the later segments of this podcast, we're going to talk about uh, a book, part of Caleb's library, that talks about sticky faith and allowing particularly young people to engage in the spiritual formation mm-hmm. of their lives at a young age and living that out uh, for the rest of their lives. And in uh, the pastor's toolbox, we're going to talk about um, onboarding new members and establishing... Uh, a pattern for what it means to be a part of a local church in our context, in a global Methodist context, which, again, what we're pointing to here is um, the, the class meeting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. A- and band meetings as a way of ongoing spiritual formation, not consumer formation, but ongoing uh, processes and, and practices of what we'll say of Wesleyan Methodism, uh, which we're trying to re- re- rediscover and recover. Right, yeah, indeed. And so, anything else you want to say regarding what what Watson's uh, taught at uh, the Allegheny West Annual Conference, or your understanding of Barner's research that you want to add to our conversation today? Um, I, I think the the thing I'd, I'd come back to is um, Watson, uh, much like you know our, our podcast from a couple of weeks ago, talking about Alistair Begg's book Brave, um, talks about how in this Christian negative culture. Um, where there isn't social benefit to being part of a church, um, that without deep spiritual formation, you won't survive. Because everything culturally is blowing you in the opposite direction. Um, you know, and I think that's uh, that's kind of a sobering word for us. Um, you know, especially as a as a parent thinking about how to invite my kids to, to trust Jesus with every part of their lives. It's like, it's, it, it is not the sort of thing that, um, that the natural flow of the culture we're in is going to push them into the life of a local church. Um, which is why we need to be more intentional than ever about, um, you know, being, uh, being wholly present um, in abiding in Jesus and, and using these spiritual disciplines to create space for God to work in us. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. That's good. So um, we're going we're gonna to transition here to some other segments, and we're going to talk more practical ways of how to do that uh, with, with um, say, a youth group or a children's ministry and, um, and how we do that with new members joining the local church. So uh, I think this is a good conversation, and I think it perhaps will give us some opportunity for a future podcast to maybe unpack this in some different ways. So thank you for sharing about Barna's research. Thank you for sharing about what Kevin Watson presented. And um, for those who, out th- who are out there in local churches who are perhaps trying to figure out how to, how to lead ministry in a context where you don't have a lot of resources or staff, uh, understand this. You don't have to imitate 
larger congregations that have a lot of activity, what you what perhaps what you need to do is focus on ways that are uh, culturally appropriate to your context to allow folks to grow in a way through this this recovering Methodist process of class meetings mm-hmm. and allowing folks to, to grow deeper in their process, not in just little segments of consumer uh, formation, but deep spiritual formation that's ongoing. That's right. It's time for Caleb's Library. Caleb, we're back to uh, our... One of my favorite parts of our podcast, which is Caleb's Library, mm-hmm. and it gives us a chance to talk about one of the books you've been reading. And yeah. uh, so today you've got for us a book. How, how long ago did you read this book, by the way? Uh, first time eight or nine years ago. You said first time. Yeah. You read books more than once? If they're good. All right. It's eight or nine years ago. This is Sticky Faith. Mm-hmm. By Powell and Clark. Yep. All right. So they tell- are uh, they're at the Fuller Youth Institute out oh. in California. Okay. Um, and it's a, a book uh, all about helping uh, to create an environment where your kids can grow up to follow Jesus. That seems important. Uh, it's really my most important job in this world. You got it. So and so, it sounds like just by the title of the book, this is allowing faith to 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 stick, right? Mm-hmm. So that kids don't go through a, a program of youth ministry or children's ministry and come out the other end and are no longer Christian. Yeah. Um, so the Fuller Youth Institute, they were doing a bunch of uh, research around um, the kids who went off to school and they were never heard from again. And the were kids who went off to school and got engaged with campus ministry and came back um, and, you know, everywhere in the middle. Um and you know this book is uh, largely based on those findings. Yeah. yeah. Um, tells some stories uh, anecdotally. Um, you gives some data. Um, yeah. I mean the their big sort of overarching message is um, if you as a parent want your kid to grow up and follow Jesus, it's not going to happen accidentally. Okay. Well, let's start there then. Yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit about why uh, this book is so important to you. You father of three kids, yeah, right. Um, grew up, you grew up in the church and kind of yep. went through the youth, children youth ministry program in your church. Yep, went away to college and uh, came back, and you found that most of the people in your youth group were no longer in church. Right? So that yeah, was, that was yeah. your personal experience. And and I didn't just go to any youth group; I went to the youth group. Right? Yeah. Like there were right. Right. Uh, there were youth pastors from you know all the surrounding counties who would come and see what we we're doing because you know there at uh, at the church in Marysville growing up, like it was it was the premier youth program. Okay, um, you know and. Uh, yeah, by the time we were 30, there were a bunch of folks who we just didn't see anymore. Okay. Um, but you know, even just anecdotally for, for me, um, you know, I was sitting down with, with my friend Kathy, uh, who also grew up in that church and, um, the things that we found were consistent about all of us. Um, one, our parents were active in Emmaus. Okay. Um, you know, so they had uh, some sort of disciplined spiritual life that was lived out in community. Um, and two, uh, they were involved in missions at some point in our time growing up. Um, they were a chaperone on one of the youth mission trips. They'd go on their own mission trip. Um, like those two things seemed to be the only thing that really, you know, was true of of those of us who, who stuck around. So without even going into um, mission trips and Emmaus experience, uh, just 30,000 foot view, parents who were involved in their Christian journey and, and in the life of the church beyond just 2.3 Sundays per month. Yeah. Right. That took their faith seriously. Um, oftentimes have 
young people in their lives that have an ongoing relationship with Jesus when they become adults. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. So I obviously, I don't think Sticky Faith is going to go into those kind of details about Emmaus or... Mm-hmm. But, but tell us a little bit about the book and what this book is suggesting to us as far as um, diagnosing the problem and, and, and how, how, how local churches and how parents and c- can try to help their, their young people live out their Christian life. Yeah. I mean, I think the... Um, you know, the first takeaway is like, don't expect the professionals to be able to pull it off, right? Like, um, delegating the discipling of your children to paid professionals in the church is a mistake. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, parents have a lot more influence than youth pastors. This is for sure. Um, I mean, just, uh, just from a time standpoint, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, the average youth group kid may have 70-ish contact hours with the youth pastor in a given year, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they have more than 3,000 with you as a parent. Yep. You know, even if the kid's going to school, involved in sports and other extracurriculars, um, as the parent, you are still spending the most time with your kid. And you can be intentional about, um, you know, both how that time is spent with your kid um, and then also forming other adult relationships around them. Yes. Um, so that, you know, their their formation isn't just from you, but it's from, you know, a group of people who are working together to, uh, to help your kid, you know, discover who they are in Christ. Um, so in uh, chapter five, uh, they talk about um, flipping the five to one principle. So in in youth ministry, they say you know you know you shouldn't have more than you know five kids for every one adult. Like that's kind of the okay. uh, that had been you know at least at uh, at the time of this this book being written, um, that had been kind of the the wisdom, right? It's like you know have an adult for every five kids. Makes there. sense. Um, but what Powell and Clark suggest is that no, no, it really you need to have five caring adults in the life of every kid. Oh wow! Um, and you know, historically, this is done mostly by family members. Sure, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, an uncle or two, right, aunt or two. Um, you know, maybe a neighbor. Um, but in you know this increasingly transient society, it requires a little more effort. It does. Um, it requires, you know, as a Christian parent, um, you know, with my Christian spouse, engaging in intentional relationships with other Christian adults sure. um, and inviting them into our lives and, and being a part of theirs. So it's, if I, I say it a different way, in this day and age, in the culture and context in which we live, um, you have to be a little more intentional to create a home field advantage. Yeah. All right. So you're going yep. to have to be intentional about. You have to send Connor Stallions into that uh, opposing wow. stadium, uh, view the wow. the hand signals wow. of of the enemy, and you know make sure that you are uh, audibling to a. For those who are listening and don't get that reference, that is a University <laughs> of Michigan reference about stealing signals. So. Uh, you have to Google that and figure out what's going on there. But I got it. I got I got where you were going. That's good. I like that. So um, I have to I have to believe there are folks out there that um, are pastoring churches that may not have a lot of resources. Yeah. Don't have any staff. And any suggestions of how they can make um, uh, a culture in their church that uh, is intentional about uh, reaching another generation for Christ. Well, I would almost make the argument that there is an advantage to being a small church when it comes to I agree. Uh, developing sticky faith because you don't have the resources to hire the professional to fix your kid. I agree. Um, you know, you you naturally have to be a little more intentional. Um, like if you're going to have a youth program at all, chances are it's going to be volunteers who think it up, make it happen, get the other adult leaders yeah. to, to work together. Um, so I mean, I would almost say the bigger question is for the the big church with a big budget and youth staffing. How do you do it? Because mm. um, I think there's 
Uh, and you know, I think that my own experience in churches of different sizes would bear this out to be true. Um, that in the smaller church, they 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 get it a little more naturally. It's culture. Yeah. Right, and in a larger church that I mean, historically has had a staff person, the culture is well, that's their job. Yep. Right, as opposed to a church that didn't doesn't have those resources, mm-hmm. it's our job. Right? That's right. And so part of it is leveraging that, we'll say, organic culture within a church. I know in in my experience, we didn't have a paid youth person. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, it was parents that led the youth ministry. But beyond that, there were other people in the congregation that would, I'll, I'll say, take me under their wing, mm-hmm. that um, whether I knew what was going on or not, they were building relationship with me. I remember Al Shipley, yeah. <laughs> and he was the head usher. And one Sunday, I was probably 14, 13, 14, 15 years old, he said, would you would you be interested in helping me take up the offering every Sunday? I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. He said, just follow me. Yeah. And I wanted to be like Al, right? So he mm-hmm. took me under his wing, and... Um, got me involved in leadership in the church at that basic level. Mm-hmm. But it also, I had something to do, Yeah. right? And so yep. it was not a struggle to get me out of bed to go to church because I was, I was counting on me, yeah. right? And so that's part of it, I think. Whether whether Al had read Sticky... Al didn't read Sticky Feet. That was a long time ago, yeah. right? But 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 he he got the concept, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. I think that's what you're, where you're going with this. Um, yeah, a smaller think... congregation culturally... Has natural resources that can be leveraged to to help um, a, a younger generation find a church home and, and grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and um, one of the things they talk about is uh, desegregating the church. Um, you know, we've sort of we're I th- I think we are on the back end of this um, ecclesial experiment where we you know separate everyone by age group. And try to give an age appropriate, sure. you know, offering for everyone. Um, the The difficulty is that you have um, you have folks who go off to college who've never been in church, and then they come and they're like, "What are we doing? What, what is, is this? this? Yeah, what is this? Like, right. w- 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 when do we play? Uh, you know, fluffy bunnies, right? Like, right. you know, wh- where are the games? Like, why? Why are we? I understand. Um, so, I think part of what they they push for as well is earlier integration of kids into the life of the total church. Sure. Um, rather than, you know, continuing to, uh, this isn't their word, this is my word, uh, coddle, you know, the different age groups and, you know, try to zero in on, on whatever, um, to instead invite them into, uh, a more adult expression of faith earlier. Okay. Well, um, that's a struggle that many churches are facing, right? Yeah. Because um, that's been kind of the, the trendy thing to do for a long time. I mean, for 30 years, we've been trying for to have something age appropriate for everybody. That's accurate. Right. And I think there are times when that's appropriate, but mm-hmm. not consistently. Yeah. Right. So you could have an entire generation of young people who've never experienced. experienced Big church, right? Yeah. I mean, that's reality. Well, and even as a you know, as a young parent, you know, the assumption when you know we are engaging in accountable discipleship is to get other young parents, like get together a bunch of people who are all in the same stage of life. Right. And I think that's a mistake. Um, you know, you really need to have those grizzled veterans of <laughs> you know raising children who are who are there with you in the midst of it. Um, and grizzled veterans that <laughs> yes <laughs> do I qualify yes Get, getting close huh <laughs> yeah well, that's true that's probably right uh, you know you've uh, you've seen your three kids through a bunch of stages oh. that we haven't even entered into oh yet. yeah you have no idea well you don't have girls so that's a different thing oh too. boy but you got three boys big deal so on yeah. sticky faith do they talk about um Age appropriate ministry, or do they, do they address that, um, or do they do they suggest kind of what I'll call cross pollinating relationships in the life of a congregation, so that there's a, a, a depth and a breadth to yeah. a young person's relationship in a local church? Yeah, they they will always take the opportunity to push intergenerational ministry. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, they'll um, you know they 
they acknowledge uh, that there are certain things you don't want to talk about in front of grandma, and grandma doesn't want you talking about them in front of her. Sure. Um, but that any opportunity you can to to be intergenerational in your ministry, uh, they would say is something to to try try to make happen. All right. So you've read this a number of times, obviously, mm-hmm. so it's an important book to you. Um, again, it's Sticky Faith uh, by Powell and Clark. Yep. And anything else you want to give us on this book? I don't think so. It's... It, it's um... It is one of those books that uh, when you read it with a three-year-old, it reads a certain way. And when you read it with a nine-year-old, it reads a different way. Okay. Um, So it's one of those that you can come back to. And as you hit the different stages of life, um, new insights become more important. All right. So read it and come back in three years and read it again. Okay. All right. Sticky Faith. Recommend it. Recommend. All right. Thanks for this uh, edition of Caleb's Library. Now for some practical wisdom for church leaders. Let's open up the pastor's toolbox. So Dave, uh, here as we open up the toolbox today, um, we're going to talk a little bit about how we bring new members into the church, how we initiate people into uh, the community of faith. Um, Thoughts? Well, uh, there's all kinds of ways to do that, obviously. It's true. And one of the things I'd like to be able to say to those who are listening is if you're a pastor of a church and you have uh, some things you want to say about some of these issues that we raised during the toolbox, we'd love to hear from you. What's the email address? Recoveringmethodism at gmail.com. Recoveringmethodism at gmail.com. If you have some thoughts and insights on how you do new member onboarding, initiation, uh, catechesis, we'd love to hear from you on that. But obviously, um, people do it differently. Yep. Okay. And so uh, in some situations, there's a very specific uh, process uh, in which uh, those who are interested in joining the church go through, whether it's you know, three weeks, four weeks, in our case, eight weeks mm-hmm. of, of classes. Um, that's, it's obviously regarding, it's important to hear the content, but it's also about building relationships mm-hmm. and having the fellowship of people um, that are joining the church come together, but also allowing folks who are already part of the church to connect with him as well. That's right. Um, in other situations, it's um, a, little, a little less structured, okay? And uh, I think that maybe for some folks, uh, there maybe needs to be a hybrid. I don't know. Hmm. I'll let people decide that on their own. But right now, what we're doing is we have an eight-week class mm-hmm. uh, called Foundations, and uh, it's a pretty good curriculum. Um, tell us a little bit about Foundations, maybe, and help folks understand what we're doing here at Riverside Church in Columbus. Uh, to help uh, folks on board here at Riverside. Yeah, and um, you, know, you, you you talked about it, but like there's a really wide spectrum within the history of the church as to yeah. how people uh, came to be initiated into into the church. Um, you know, there's uh, you know stories from the early church where it's you know a multi year process um, of catechesis sure. before you get to be. Um, baptized on Easter Sunday and come in. Um, and then, you know, we have uh, friends, especially down south, where someone the first Sunday, they can come, go up to the altar and become a member. Yeah. Um, a little less structured. A little less structured. Um, so for us, as, as we were talking about uh, new member stuff, you know, we were talking about how does it, how do you, um, how do you give people an experience of, um, of the life of the church in a condensed window. Right. Um, so, you know, as global Methodists, um, we are deeply committed to, uh, the idea of watching over one another in love, you know, the, the class meeting ish type structure, uh, which, you know, for our toolbox, one of these days we'll get to, uh, Watson's class meeting, I'm sure. Um, 
but you know, so we have this this deep commitment to uh, watching over one another in love, having accountable discipleship in a uh, group format, but we also have these um, these more educational pieces that for someone who's going to join a global Methodist church, they should understand what they're coming to be a part of. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting. We're seeing a lot of folks come to Riverside right now um, from other United Methodist congregations mm-hmm. because we're kind of a, on an island here, here in yeah. Columbus. Um, and they'll often say, do I, do, I've been a Methodist all my life. Do I need to go to a class to join? Can I just transfer my membership? And Part of the answer is we'd love to have you here. We're glad you're here. We can transfer your membership, but we really want you to be part of this class because this is a new thing, yeah. right? We're in a new denomination, and part of that is learning what that is, right? Yeah. Um, you know, what's the doctrine? Uh, what are what? How is it different? Because we're not mm-hmm. UMC 2.0. We're very different. Yep. Um, but also, what is it? What's it? How do you understand the culture of this local congregation? Yeah. And uh, how do you build those relationships with other people? And so it is, it's it's kind of multi-layered process where there's there's doctrine, there's disciplines, there's there's the, the catechesis, but mm-hmm. also there's the the fellowship mm-hmm. and the culture of the local church. And I see that unfolding in in the yeah. in the foundations class that you're leading. Um, by the way, Caleb's leading that in somebody's home, right? And so yep. someone has opened up their home. It's not done here at the local church. It's done in somebody's home, which again models. Hospitality, hospitality, warmth, yep, yep. And, and and class meeting, mm-hmm. right? So, um, if if the class meeting process is going to be inherent in what we do, it's part of our DNA. Then it's it's being modeled as a part of the initiation process, right? I mean, it's, yeah, that's what it's designed to do. Yeah. So you know, when we were putting it together, we said, how do we, um, how do we give people an experience of accountable discipleship of the class meeting right. of watching over one another in love. Right. Um, and then what are the pieces that need to be present in order for that to be maximally effective? And, um, you know, our, our experience as, um, as, as pastors and small group leaders and people who've helped people, uh, grow in their discipleship to Jesus, um, you know, I, I think we both had this, this conviction that, that those, those groups of, of accountable, uh, accountability, um, they really function best, when um, there are specific disciplines to orient your life together um, in that in that process of wanting to become more like Jesus. Um, so you know for us in foundations, we have uh, a week where we are talking about um, the basics of Orthodox Christianity, so talking about the creeds, um, talking about the history of the the early church, especially, um, you know, and then we have a session where we're talking about you know Methodist doctrinal distinctives. Right. Um, but then we get into the um, what Wesley called uh, the ordinances of God, right? The the spiritual disciplines, means of grace, the means of grace. So um, we'll do a week where we teach on uh, on prayer as a discipline, and then you have a week to experiment with it. Um, and then the following week we come back and say, how did God meet you this week in your, your in, practice in of your, prayer? In your prayer time, where did you experience God? Um, you know, we have a week on, on scripture reading and then it's that same process. Um, you know, we have some, uh, some opportunities throughout the week to study scripture in possibly new ways and then say, you know, how did God meet you in your scripture study? Sure. Um, worship, Sabbath, denial, generosity, uh, confession, um, these, these disciplines that are at the foundation and the bedrock for Christianity as a whole, because we need to remember John Wesley was trying to rediscover primitive Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for us as those who inherit that, that mantle, um, for us too, they're, they're distinctives of Methodism as they're distinctives of uh, Christianity more broadly. So one of the things we talked about in a previous uh, podcast was that these means of grace create space mm-hmm. for, for God to, to work and move and act in our lives, speak into our lives. And so one of the things I like about what's happening in the Foundations class is that the individuals participating have an opportunity to write a spiritual autobiography, mm-hmm. okay? And so um, part of that, of course, is... Looking backward and saying, "Okay, how how have I been shaped and formed, and what were 
some of the most influential experiences spiritually from my life. How did I come to Christ? How have I been mm-hmm. shaped? And what brought me to this place? Uh, but I would think also it's overlapped with what's happening now, yeah, right? And, and these practices of prayer and scripture and worship and sacrament and how they're reflecting on um, how God is acting, moving, and speaking in their life now, which I think um, produces in the long run a better capacity for someone to share their faith story. Oh, undoubtedly. And to evangelize and to witness and be... Because most people who've not gone through a process like this uh, are reluctant to share their faith journey or their faith Mm -hmm. story because they've never done it. They've been asked to do it. Yeah. And so this is a bit of a, I'll say, a trial run for these individuals to learn to articulate their faith journey in a way and share it in a safe space Mm -hmm. and um, be better equipped in the future to be able to share their faith with others. Yeah, and I think part of the the resourcing of developing uh, this more disciplined lifestyle is that when you have the opportunity to share your faith, it's not just what God did for me way back then, you know, that I remember a little bit fog foggily. Sure. But it's, you know, here's what's happened in the last two weeks. Right. You know, here's how God is continuing to speak into my life. Um, here's how, you know, the the spirit continues to enliven what's going on. Here's how God continues to bring restoration to relationships, um, bring, you know, the sanctification to the way I see my family, my neighbors and coworkers mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, like that's, that's for us kind of that middle ground that we, we fell on. Um, and I think it's, you know, we're, we are uh, experimenting with it here, and you know, I'm I'm sure as time goes on, we'll tweak it here and there, and and try to uh, make it uh, as maximally beneficial as we can. Um, but I, I I do think you know when we are talking about how we initiate people into the body, uh, being clear about who you are and why you're doing things is important. So. My experience in ministry, yours as well probably, is there's the ideal and then there's the practical, and sometimes <laughs> there's a big gap between the two of those things, yep. right? And so right now, we're kind of focused on the ideal, that if you want to join, you go through this eight-week class, and but what we've already begun to experience is there are some who say, well, I can't make that particular class, but I still want to join. And we don't want to dissuade them from joining the church. At the same time, we don't want to ignore the fact that there are you know, let's say a dozen other people that are actually going through the process, mm-hmm. and we don't want to have two tracks to membership, one where people yep. go through the process and the others that don't. And so one of the things we'll have to figure out is how we're flexible and, and providing multiple opportunities for folks to experience this process. Um, right now, it's it's sort of our, our, our beta test, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, and so hopefully in the future, we'll be able to run multiple tracks of these kind of things. Um I don't know that we'll ever get to a place where we should ever get to a place where it's a fast track. I because pray that, de- that we don't. Because that defeats, yeah. defeats purpose, right? Well, and I think you know part of what makes uh, Christianity so special is it's the only organization in the world that there's no benefit to membership. It's true. I mean, yesterday we had uh, a family that's a part of our church but has never become members um, who we prayed for as they uh, moved on to... Uh, living in a different country, right? Right, like we didn't say, "Well, you have to be members for us sure, to, sure. you know, pray over you." Um, last night, um, I had uh, a lady who is really, um, she's done with her United Methodist Church. She said, "Like, what will happen if I just cancel my membership over there?" I said, "Nothing," because in the Christian Church, like. This is the only organization in the world that there's no benefit to membership. Um, and, you know, I think there there probably was at some point a sort of cultural expectation to be able to say, well, yeah, I'm a member here or, or whatever. Um, but increasingly, I think when we are talking about membership, we are talking about a commitment to a community and to a style of life that's going to look weird um, radically in, different in our in our wider culture. Radically different, yeah. right? Than, than the culture. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does look weird. So it's like you know, yeah. If uh, if a you know eight week commitment 
makes you say, oh, that's not for me. Well, then you're probably right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, we we aren't trying to... um, we aren't trying to launch a thousand paper boats here, right? right? We're trying to build seaworthy ships. Right. Um, and, you know, from a, from a truth telling standpoint and from a caring um, for the spiritual health of, of someone's standpoint um, to say, well, you know, we, we are uh, affirming the, shape of your religious life without any sort of like actual relationship being built is a mistake. There is no discipleship without relationship. That's right. And it has to be modeled. There's no holiness other than social, social holiness. holiness. I've heard this somewhere before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is how we're currently doing it at Riverside. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we'd love to hear from other pastors and other churches about how they're doing it. Um, and if you want more information about foundations and what we're doing here at Riverside, just email us at recoveringmethodism at gmail.com and uh, love to hear from you. Um, but this, uh, I think it's a good conversation for our toolbox today about how we're currently onboarding mm-hmm. people and providing a process uh, for folks to connect to this local church and make it their spiritual home. Yep. All right. Well, I appreciate this uh, opportunity to talk about it. And we're going to close the lid on the toolbox and uh, Ooh, shut. And yeah. uh, we'll pick up something next time. Thanks, Caleb. Sounds good, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Recovering Methodism podcast. We hope your heart has been strangely warmed. Be sure to like, subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a five-star review. God bless.